the concept and the organization of what is known as a family office, uh, they've intrigued me for such a long time and are the expertise of my guest today. You guys are gonna love uh, episode 13. Now, one of my personal beliefs in, in life that I've accumulated through seeing others' experiences and, and, and my own uh, analyzing my own experiences is that anything, literally anything, is possible. Whether you want more money, more time, more happiness, a companion, uh, do you want kids, uh, a successful business, uh, a successful career, whatever the, the case may be, that that is possible. Now, along with that belief, because that's just part of the story, along with that belief is this notion that there was already somebody else out there that had what, uh, what is wanted, whether it's me or you. And instead of going about uh, experimenting, trial and error and so forth, uh, which is, I believe is the, the hard way, the shortcut, right, is to figure out what that person does or what they uh, did to get those uh, results. Now, now that this led to a value uh, at, at, at my uh, company paradigm. Uh, we have a set of values that we make decisions through, and one of them is be is be do have. And the concept of be do have may be uh, familiar to a lot of you, uh, but maybe uh, unfamiliar, foreign to some of you. The idea is that in order to have something, you have to have the behavior before that produces those results. But in order to have that behavior, mindset is what influences behavior. Now, the behavior. Uh, that you have right now is producing the results that you have. If you want different results, you have to have different behavior. And in order to have a different behavior, you have to have that different paradigm or perspective. So it's figuring out the person that has those results and what are their actions and what is their mentality, their perspective, their paradigm. So my guest today uh, is basically someone that is, I would consider an expert in regards to uh, family offices. And he uh, runs the Family Office Club. His name is Richard Wilson. And you can check him out on his own podcast, uh, but visit his website. It's familyoffice.com and capitalraising.com as well. He has a couple of eBooks on there that you can download, uh, download for free. Now, Richard specializes in helping uh, ultra high net worth families uh, create the concept of a family office. So the family office is a structure for these high net worth families uh, to manage their their family and also their wealth. So instead of having you know scattered legal insurance investment uh, estate planning business consulting you know uh, people that are you know just in in different organizations, it is all done under the exact same roof. And this is what's called uh, a family office. And I believe that the management here really shows you how uh, ultra high net worth families are able to pass on their wealth from generation to generation to generation. And it's not just estate planning because estate planning is just facilitating the transfer of assets uh, if you just boil, boil it down. But the idea is that you know wealth was uh, was created again going back to the be do have principle. Okay, wealth is a result of something. There was something that was done. There was a mentality that influenced that behavior. That typically uh, the next generation doesn't have unless you have a very cohesive plan in order to teach them the principles behind how that wealth was created. And so that's a part of it as well. And so it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, this guy's an expert. He helps with you know a lot of the uh, the investment side of things. He consults with these families to help set up the, the structure. And uh, so I think you guys are going to find the, the interview uh, pretty fascinating. So check out the new website, all the links that will be discussed on, uh, on the podcast, on the interview today are there in our show notes and also we'll have our, our uh, the, the resources mentioned as well on there uh, and then uh, and then finally uh, if you uh, if, if you guys wouldn't mind 
if you love what you hear, definitely go into iTunes and give us a positive review. And uh, and then recently also, I have uh, been a little bit more active on Instagram and Facebook. So if you want to follow me on those channels, uh, feel free to do so. The links will be in uh, in the show notes to do so. All right, everyone. Can't wait for uh, uh, for you to hear this next podcast episode. It's episode 13 of season one of the Wolf Standard Podcast. Richard Wilson. Welcome to the special 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are currently listening to Life Season One. Okay, so Richard, uh, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks, thanks for having me, Patrick. I, uh, I'm happy to be here, and I think that it'll be exciting to talk about, you know, what we've planned to about Sent Millionaires. Well, this is uh, this is the thing. It's it's. I would say, you know, the 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 area in which you you know that you operate is is an area that most people have no idea exists. And so, I think it's going to be a very intriguing, very intriguing conversation. Kind of getting into, you know, what are some of the more you know affluent families in the world uh, doing? How how are they structured? Um, how are they? Uh, operating their businesses? How are they working on legacy? I don't know. It's going to be a fascinating uh, conversation, but I thought it might be good for you just to give, you know, kind of a a brief summary of how you got into uh, this space where you're working with that type of crowd. Um, Essentially, I was raising capital in Boston and I found that while trying to raise capital from what were called family offices, uh, which are organizations that manage the wealth for those that are worth 10 million, 50 million, or hundreds of millions of dollars, that nobody was helpful to me. So just out of self-interest, I was just writing about what I was learning in the industry. And then almost on accident, the website took off and started getting thousands of hits. And I got on the front page of the Boston Globe and spoke 150 times in, in 17 different countries. And um, that experience in meeting with well over a thousand family offices in person it all just kind of created a business uh naturally you know just by listening to what the people are asking me about and seeing the evolution of the space so i was in the right place at the right time um was part of it and then i just doubled down and tripled down once i saw that this was going to be a big industry over time i got into it really so so how long ago was that uh, 11 years ago is when I started. Okay. So maybe, maybe let's just kind of dive right into, you know, some of the things that you have learned from, uh, you know, from these structures, maybe first by just explaining what a family office is, uh, but then maybe getting into, you know, what are some of those elements uh, of, of the structure that make contrast with, you know, the, the typical way of doing things, the traditional way of doing things? So traditionally, um, somebody might have their wealth managed by a broker or a financial advisor, and um, then they separately have an insurance agent. They separately they might donate some money to a couple charities. They separately might have a lawyer they work with every now and then to form an LLC or something. And they typically don't have a lot of complicated trust in the state and tax planning. But when you're worth more, there's many th- things that happen. One is your life gets more complex. Um, and you're typically responsible for managing all that complexity. And still your advisors expect you to be the one coordinating between everyone. So your CPA might tell you something, and you have to remember that, and maybe tell your wealth advisor, and then your wealth advisor might not be talking to your insurance agent, et cetera. So it's very fragmented. And at the same time, you have more going on in your personal life because you're more successful. You have more employees, more people asking you for money, et cetera. 
more likely to be a target of the IRS or other things, other organizations. And because of that, there is less time on your plate to be looking at things. And the cost of making a mistake is much greater. So if you make a 1% mistake on your taxes and you're worth $100 million, you just lost a million dollars. It could have paid for a full-time team. It's much different than if you're worth $100,000. Then you probably made many mistakes and you don't care that much or you might not even know you ever made the mistake. So the problem gets worse and it's more likely to be a problem the more wealthy you are. So a family office is putting protections in place, making it holistic, making sure all the trains are leaving the station in a coordinated effort. And it's not only protecting you, which usually pays for the family office cost itself, but then you can be more proactive and say, okay, I made my money by being a professional hockey player. So I want to invest in the hockey industry and we're going to be using my connections, my connections to professional teams or the media channels we have in that industry, et cetera. And we're going to be applying that expertise and using our DNA to invest more intelligently. So that gets into more of like what I see happening within my clients, but that, that's why family offices exist is to play defense, coordinate, and then gather yourself on what would be a proactive offense for your investments. Now, I know one of the, you know, one of the examples that's used often, and by the way, that was a great, a great explanation. That was probably the best explanation I've, I've ever received of, of what a family office is. Uh, but what I, what I would say is, you know, the, the examples that I've at least heard uh, is really uh, the, the Rockefeller family and the Vanderbilt family. And, you know, the Rockefeller family is, is one that I've heard that kind of pioneered the idea of a family office and how things are orchestrated, whether it's the financial and business team uh, all kind of working in 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 sync, uh, but it's also from a legacy standpoint, which is you know as you do have uh, heirs to the throne, right? You're able to incorporate uh, the, the the values, the principles that you know created the wealth in the in the first place. Um, so could you maybe talk to those two families, you know, the the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers, and kind of where you know where where they fit into this whole family office idea, and then maybe talk about how family offices have evolved, have evolved from there. Sure. I mean, I think that they're very famous families, so they're good examples of it. But, you know, when you go all the way back to the days of, um, you know, castles and medieval times, I mean, essentially those were ultra wealthy families who put up walls to keep out people trying to take their wealth or take their resources. And they would also invest in proactively expanding and sending out exploration ships and, you know, um, you know, at the heart of it all is that comes to mind. what's it fallen apart is, is that as the mass affluent crowd grows and then there's a gap between those who are worth many billions of dollars. Right, 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 for sure. I mean, I think that it goes back, I mean, pieces of having a family office in place, the idea is very simple. And so it goes back, I mean, you can go back a thousand years if you want to uh, on it. But what's really evolved more recently is people hearing this word family office and thinking to themselves, well, why isn't my wealth being managed holistically? Maybe I am only worth $7 million or $14 million, but you know, why should I, with my 30 employees, have to keep track of all these different things? I want somebody centrally doing it and somebody who can be you know, doing a more holistic job and be more high service than the normal wealth manager. But the other thing that really drives the family office concept forward, I think more than anything else, is the fact that at the core of it all, the demand is for direct investments that multifamily offices typically can't help with at all. If you say you want to buy an apartment building, they say, no, 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 invest in this REIT. 
And that way it's more liquid and you can diversify your access, et cetera. And only 1% of wealth management firms and multifamily offices will be helpful at all. Otherwise it'd be like, oh yeah, well, I heard there's this broker downtown. Maybe he can help you. Or, you know, they're not going to be able to help you in a hands-on way almost at all. At best, it'll be a private quote unquote deal that's syndicated among 300 clients within UBS. And you're going to own 0.5% of an asset that you'll have no control in. And it'll be five layers of fees and two that you're only aware of. So with a family that's made their own wealth in its first generation, which is 90% of my clients, their whole life has been them navigating the jungle and cutting down fruits themselves. So it's totally backwards for them to get to age 45 at a liquidity event uh, or at some point in their life and say, okay, well, I spent my whole life building this wealth here. Now you, you manage it all for me and try not to lose it uh, and charge me fees along the way. So for them, it's just unnatural. They want control. They want to be investing in the industry they know, typically 20, 40% in real estate of some type or a hard asset of some type. They might want to do lending. And a lot of wealth management firms are just old school, like, oh, stocks, bonds, you know, ETFs, indexes, let's get you beta access, let's put you in these fund managers. And that's appropriate for most people for part of their portfolio. But the self-made guy who's an entrepreneur his whole life, it's totally backwards to be like, okay, here you go. You know, no, it's, it's totally conflicting, right? So that, that's, that's, yeah. that's the core of it. Yeah. So, so maybe, t- so For how sure. have you, have you maybe seen kind of like the, the, the evolution or how they're looking forward to the future? Like where they've evolved from what they're looking at for the future? Who are they following? Like, what are they, what do you see that these family offices are, are, are doing? I mean, obviously you've, you've hit on the one thing, which is, you know, staying kind of true to a niche, right? Whether it's the, you know, film industry or a professional uh, sport, et cetera. But what, you know, what are you, what are you seeing as kind of like the evolution of, of family offices and what they're doing uh, looking into the future? There's, a, there's two new trends that are becoming popular, but still probably are not used by hardly anyone at all, but it's inevitable that they'll grow. Uh, one is doing more marketing and branding and public relations as a single family office. People might say, oh no, well, we're private. We would never do marketing. Uh, but then you don't have anything sweating for you in the marketplace originating deal flow. So you might say, oh, well, I don't want to have the Wilson family office because people are going to hunt me down and find out who Richard Wilson is and find me and ask me for money for silly things. But instead of having it be the Wilson family office, if you made your money uh, working in hospitality, you could create the hospitality family office or at the whatever holding company related to hospitality with a hospitality logo, or you could communicate to the hospitality industry if that's the deal flow you want because you have strategic connections, distribution channels, sales abilities, you're a titan of the space, you're locally known, you have credibility then you could be going to hospitality conferences, events, magazines, being interviewed by people and be displaying and wearing on the sleeve the hospitality holding company and just be getting hospitality deal flow if that's where you think your direct investment should be going. And there is no privacy downfall because you can have the privacy on the who is details on your, your domain name and you can have things shielded and have your professional staff members on the team and have it be shielding your privacy while being very public because then you'll get superior deal flow and you'll get deal flow that you'll see first before it goes to a broker, before it goes to a family that's not specialized because you can add strategic value. You'll see deal flow you'll get a better valuation of because they know that you can take them places. They want to go faster and otherwise maybe they don't need money because they have a very profitable, successful business. You might be added to a board. You might be able to invest and get a small equity piece in a company that again doesn't need investors 
place. You can be on that, that board. It could be an opportunity. And it's, um, it's not only the deals you might see first or might see only exclusively, but when you combine that with the valuation perspective and the ability to have synergy on closed deals, everything builds momentum. So each new investment you do, there might be more cross-selling, upselling, one business's lead generation for another business. And now you have a chessboard all in the hospitality space and you can destroy competition because your acquisition cost of the customer could be higher and you still make more money than the other person perhaps, or you have a longer view. So your time horizon is longer and they're trying to flip a company in seven years and you're not, you know? That's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I would say, so from like a securities standpoint, I mean, that is, I mean, essentially syndicating and using kind of outside uh, family money. Like I know there's registrations available, you know, to family offices so that they're, you know, doing that above board. Right. So Mm -hmm. how, I mean, so is it, is it, so to participate in those type of deals, right? So if there's a hospitality family office, is it, is it, are they looking just for other family offices to invest with them? Is that kind of how it's working? A lot of my clients just, um, they have money to allocate and they don't need to raise any capital. So they're just looking for the best deal flow to allocate their capital to. So it could be individual clients. Um, it is. Yeah. So okay. I, like I've got a client that's sold his business for $350 million and you know, he's just looking to allocate. He doesn't need anyone's money. He just needs the best deal flow possible. Huh. I do you have many multifamily offices that speak at our conferences. Like we had 53 family offices on stage at our family office club event in December and half of them were multifamily offices who are registered RIAs and who, you know, are managing wealth for clients. They typically don't do direct investments though, like hospitality. Um, but we do have a lot of independent sponsors who come and they form like a special purpose uh, vehicle or a fund. And it might be just a one deal fund. So it keeps it away from being a blind pool mm-hmm. situation, but then they, they syndicate the deal after putting 10 or 20% of their money in. But you know, there are family offices that also raise capital, but a lot of single family offices are just looking to allocate their capital in the smartest way possible. And if every now and then they co-invest with another family, they may do so. But a lot of them are just trying to allocate and, you know, strategically use their capital in the best way possible. That's interesting. Well, it's a, it's a, fasc- it's a fascinating space. I, I, I imagine you're learning quite quite a bit from it, but maybe, maybe speak, speak to that. And then maybe as we end, we can talk about, you know, what, what kind of the traditional, you know, uh, family offices are doing to, to pass on legacy to those family members that are born into the family. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, one thing I commonly see is just the long-term platform approach to a business niche. Most of the time, I'd say 80, 90% of the time, it's where the family made their money. And then they also have an allocation to real estate, but both things need to have intentionality behind it. So typically it's a lot smarter to have a strategy, a go-to strategy where you're going to be building strategic expertise for your real estate allocations. And that might matter more than choosing the lucky time to invest or the right asset class to invest. And for all families, different levels of diversification are appropriate. You can never give like a generic blanket advice for such a thing, but uh, at least having the strategy for when you're allocating. So it's, that's something that a lot of mass affluent and people that are worth under 30 million, under 50 million. I just had dinner last night uh, with someone who's worth over 50 million and they, they don't have a go-to strategy for this. So something that's missing from a lot of people that don't have a formalized family office. 
but also on the business side, on the operating business side, I just see that the family offices consistently look to where things are going, look for where things inevitably will be higher value than they are now. And then they just go for the long-term lockdown on that, whether they're dominating a niche or they're just covering an area to have maximum distribution over the long term. They, you know, because there's not many other organizations out there like a private equity fund. They got to turn things over in seven or ten years. Mm-hmm. Pension fund or endowment fund, they're not navigating agile deals. And the high net worth guy doesn't have enough money to take down the big deals. Mm-hmm. So they're able to think for the long term, but write checks both small and large that just focus on that niche. But the private equity funds, you know, they have to cherry pick the big deals that, you know, meet their criteria and they have a different time horizon. So I think the takeaways for anyone listening is that um, if you look at a niche area that's going to grow in value, if you can take the longer term approach so that you have high conviction over that long term, but you're patient in how you do it and you're tactical and you look at how different businesses can, can help each other in your portfolio, then you can do uh, perhaps better than someone that just says yes to the exciting cannabis investment and, oh yeah, this crypto fund's going to be amazing and triple my money, but I don't understand anything about how it works. And, you know, there's a lot of like shiny, bright objects when someone knows you have money. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who, like you were describing, who some of your listeners are, I think a lot of them fall prey to the friend who has the crypto fund or the friend that has that exciting thing. And if you don't know what you're investing in, then typically, unless you have someone very much that you trust advising you, just don't invest in it, you know? Well, in the end, it's one of those I don't know. The human behavior is very, very interesting. And I think, you know, this may play into the last, the last piece because psychology, right. It doesn't matter really how educated you are uh, at some point, like you're, you're, you're prey to emotions, right. You're a prey to, you know, that greed of the shiny object. Right. And I think, you know, that's indicative of what's going on right now in the crypto space. Uh, And, you know, and, and I think the tell is a fact, you know, very few people can explain what it is. Right. And they're obviously investing in it because of the upside. Right. And in the end, I mean, I would say, you know, whether it's the high net worth crowd or whether it's, you know, just the normal retail uh, investor, that, that kind of human behavior element is, uh, is fascinating. And that's, that's why I think, you know, financial education is one of those, one of those things that it's coming, coming to me over and over as you've been talking, because, you know, these are, these are families that, you know, it's like a Marriott family. Like why would a Marriott family, right? Start a family office and then go invest in like oil and gas, right? They're in hospitality. They're mm-hmm. in that suite. They understand that, right? That's all that they're going to do. There may be upside right. potential somewhere else, but like what, the, the risk associated with that all praise to human, you know, it's, it's human behavior, but because of that experience, because of knowledge, right. because of network, et cetera, like it doesn't make any sense for them to do something, something different. But I would say it comes down to right. not just the experience, but also the financial education of, um, you know, of, of the family itself. Right. Right. For sure. One of my coaches is, uh, Dan Sullivan. And he always says, when you simplify things, multiply, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that is true for, uh, hands-on direct investing. It's very different than trying to diversify in the public markets and using a professional for that part of your portfolio. Cause when you diversify with direct investments, you lose the synergies, the learning curves don't you know, coincide with each other's, the team can't be as multifunctional, the infrastructure can't be used in the same way. So um, you have to be really careful diversifying too much with direct investments, I think. 
So what? So maybe let's let's finish with finish with this. So this is a few years ago, uh, but we've we've done some work with uh, Agora before. I'm sure you're familiar with Agora. But Bill Bonner is his son. Uh-huh kind of created this course on, you know, fam, a family office. It was very intriguing. And there was a, there was a side of it that, you know, dealt with investment, which we've been covering, but there's another side of it that dealt uh, really with how, you know, family passes on values, because, you know, I would say, you know, the individual that created the wealth in the first place, right. Probably thinks different than the status quo, but it doesn't mean that their, you know, that their, you know, genealogy or their, you know, their, their progenity is going to, uh, be the same thing. They're not going to have the same experiences. They're going to bo- be born, you know, within this framework that, you know, they're really not going to have to do anything. So if you think, if you think about it, so what are some, maybe some, some tactics or things that family offices are doing to, uh, you know, to educate their, their kids, their grandkids, and maybe those that will come, you know, after they're gone. Sure. Um, well, I think one mistake a lot of families make, in my opinion, is they say, oh, well, let's get the kids involved early and we'll have them help with the foundation and giving away money to kids in Africa. And deep in their brain, they're embedding in the kids' minds that, hey, money's everywhere. It flows out of our nose. Let's give it away as fast as possible. <laughs> and they're training the kid to give away money. But the family's wealth was created by creating value through the world which is doing good by running a business, hiring people, spending money, improving the economy, et cetera. For sure, it should involve also things that are good and treating employees well. And there could be a philanthropic part, but it should be in its own place and not the full focus of kids as they grow up in the teenagers in college, unless they want to work at a nonprofit their whole life, which they might, but they're less likely to have their own independent career that is fulfilling with that mindset it's a mindset of unlimited resources and let's give it all away and unless that's the family's goal it's probably not a good thing to be doing exclusively with kids but i see it a lot and i think yeah this is great uh the other thing is that um i think it's you know wise for families to create a family bank and basically give kids money for education maybe even master's or PhD degree education, maybe a a first home at age, whatever, 28 or 30, or a first home once you get that education done. But beyond that, I think it's pretty smart for families to say, well, we also have $100 million over here in this trust. And if you want access to that money, you have to come up with a business plan. That business plan gets reviewed by the elders. You then get feedback. It then gets revised a few times over, and it's limited to X amount of dollars your first time. And then if that gets approved, we will fund the business and the money goes right into the business that we're funding that'll perpetuate the family legacy of entrepreneurship. Otherwise, you're not going to get a new Ferrari every two years in condos in Miami Beach and Monaco and Ibiza. Like you're going to work and you're going to like, you know, we're going to force you to have a fulfilling life to actually do something besides play video games and experiment with uh, substances, you know? (laughs) So I think that's exactly what I would do. You know, um, if I can get my business to the level where I have that high quality problem of having to plan that is creating a family bank to encourage, you know, resourcefulness and, you know, productivity. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, all all of this is, is pretty fascinating because I think if you, you know, if you look at the comment that you made regarding, you know, uh, philanthropic efforts, right. and, And actual productive value creating businesses, it's one of those things where I don't think society really understands like the, the difference because they would assume that the better thing to do, right. Is like the philanthropic stuff, but that is the least right. 
that, that, that is, uh, I would say in a sense, like a wait, a waste of resources. Okay. Because in the end, if they've built that, it means that they've created a tremendous amount of value and they could continue to do that. And I think that continual drive to produce more, to do more, right? They're not, I wouldn't say they're necessarily doing it because of, of the financial side alone, but it's because of their expertise and they're making improvements, which ultimately benefit way more than whatever the philanthropic effort is going to be. Now, not to say that the philanthropic effort is, is, is bad, uh, but what I'm saying is that the focus is, is production. And I think really talking about that with children you know, that, that is, again, it's like their, their minds are plastic growing up. Right. And they, they don't necessarily look at themselves as being able to take who they are, their characteristics, their experience, and be valuable to other people because of what they produce, not what they, not what they like give, give away that they didn't produce. Anyway, it's a fascinating, just the psychology, the the psychology, the, the psychology on it, but from the family bank perspective, so that's what I, so I have little, I'm not at the level, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, at that level of, of family office or, or, or wealth, but right. even like from a, a younger level, like my, I have three kids and my 13 year old and 11 year old, we have our own family bank. Now it's not, it's not this idea. Cause I know that, you know, traditional family offices have a, you know, literal like fund entity, et cetera, in terms and all the documents are drawn up. There's titles and D, you know, you have all that, but mm-hmm. just from like a, theor- a theoretical standpoint, um, I think that has been the best tool that I've had with, with my kids because you don't have to say no to things. Okay. But you lend to them and then they have to, they have to uh, pay it back. Right. They have to right. actually go out and figure out ways in which they create value. Uh, and you know, my, they babysit in our neighborhood, but they've figured out ways to actually enhance the babysitting experience, right? Where they want more money. They want to be able to pay back loans because they want to buy things, okay? But they're out, you know, now I'm not saying, you know, just the consumption way is the best way to do it. But what I'm saying is like what they're learning about interest, what they're learning about, you know, going out and actually having to work and do things, right? right. And try to be valuable. Right. That's where the money's gonna, that's where the money's gonna, gonna come from. So even I would say, right. yeah, from a family office perspective, that's kind of where I got the original idea. Uh, but in the end, it's like, cool. it provides like a built-in accountability. Right, right, for sure. And it just gets it, deep in their brain that like you create value for others. And then that is how you, you know, get things in life is by producing something, you know, and like knowing that when you mess up, maybe you don't get paid at all, or maybe you get paid less, or maybe it's not sustainable pay. Like those are all important lessons that they don't teach you in school. And that are so important to, you know, just surviving as a person in society that just gets missed with people going in 80 K in debt for a history degree, but they don't want to teach, you know, like there's just like in, in so many ways it comes out in career choices, education choices, and just, you know, life choices, I think. So for sure, I think it's really important. I think that uh, a lot of family officers struggle with how to do it because they grow up and the kids go into a $40,000 a year kindergarten and they have got a private plane and they have six houses and yet they want the kid to still be as resourceful and hardworking as they were but maybe they grew up and they didn't have enough money in college to buy a girl a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, it's hard to replicate that for the next generation, I think. Yeah. And there's probably so many examples of, uh, of that, but, but in the end, you know, you do have dynasty families that, that are out there. They're continuing to, you know, just reinforce their principles, their values uh, into the, the future generations so that they are hopefully more, productive than, uh, than right. the, the original, you know, the original founders. 
Well, this right. has been all, this has been awesome, Richard. I mean, you you obviously are kind of getting a front row seat to like a trillion dollar education. Um, it's been awesome <laughs> to have you on and kind of share share your share your wisdom. Uh, maybe yeah, well, I'll give you the, the final word on you know maybe um, you know what you would what, what piece of advice you'd give to you know to our audience, but also talk about how people can get a hold of you, which of course we'll post on show notes and social media and online. Sure, um, you know for those that are looking to work with family offices in some way. I imagine there's some listeners who would like to do that. Just really encourage them to think about it as growing a relationship first uh, instead of worrying about showing a deal to a family. You know, there might be people listening who are like, oh, maybe I could raise capital for this real estate deal or for my private equity fund. Or, But uh, I think it's really important that you lay the tracks down first because no one invests in a deal unless they know and are you know, they find the person behind the deal credible. That gets missed a lot in this space. And I hear it a lot at our events. Um, and if anyone wants to learn more, um, we have two different books for free on, on familyoffices.com. We have a book on family offices for free and on capitalraising.com. We have a free book on raising capital. Um, and you get the whole books for free. So there's no you know real catch there. You can buy them on Amazon and they're super cheap. It's cheap as they'll allow me to sell them, but might as well get them for free on the website. And then, um, you know, if anyone has questions or wants to follow up or see, you know, when our capital raising workshops are or family office events, they can just uh, email me at richard at familyoffices.com. Cool. And, I, and, I'll, and we'll get, you know, all the links to the sites and social media as well. So if you weren't able cool. to take that information down, then we'll uh, just go to, go to the website and, uh, or go to uh, just our social media. We posted on there as well. Uh, Richard, awesome. it was awesome, man. Thank you so much for, for sharing, uh, sharing with us today. It's been, uh, it's been really valuable for me personally, uh, but also I guarantee for our listeners. Yeah. I'd love to, love to keep in touch, Patrick. Maybe we could, um, have you on our family office podcast as well sometime or have you at one of our events. Hey, I'd love to anytime, anytime. Great. Thanks Richard. Thank you. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.